Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. Whenever we finish a book, it's like saying goodbye to an old friend. We've spent seven months in 1 Timothy. Today we bid it farewell. It's our last message. We've reached the end. Now this, this epistle is a vital epistle for the church to understand. If we can understand what is here for us and we can obey it, the church can avoid many of the pitfalls and the challenges that have split churches today. And as we worked through the book together, we learned that the church is the visible picture of Christ. You want to know what Christ looks like? Look at the church. And because the church is the visible picture of Christ, we learned that we are entrusted with the role of guarding and obeying the truth of Scripture. We observe this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul said, if I delay, you may know, I write this, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, truth is a thing that is in short supply today. Our world hates the concept of truth. We've arrived at a place in our postmodern world in which everyone can choose their own truth. You can choose what makes life work for you, and that can be your truth. Now, there's only a couple of important caveats. First, love, at least what the world says is love, is the ultimate truth. So the world's concept of love trumps your concept of love or any truth claim you might make. Second... A religious statement of truth cannot be tolerated. That can't be truth. And so we live in an age of confusion because when everyone gets to determine their own truth, well, if everyone is truth, then nothing is true. There is no truth. But truth, real, dogmatic, unchanging, undeniable truth does exist. God is truth. John 14, 6 tells us this. He reveals to us that he is the truth. And not only, not that, that he has the truth or that he knows the truth, but that he actually is truth. Truth is bound up in God's person. And as such, he is the determiner of truth. Second, we know that God has revealed that truth to us in his word. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as a result, the church is charged with being the guardian, the pillar and buttress of the truth. We've seen this reality over and over in the epistle. As Paul ends this letter to Timothy and the Ephesian church, he reminds them and he reminds us one last time to guard the faith from all that would destroy it. Let's look at the last two verses of this epistle, beginning in verse 20, 1 Timothy 6. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In this final reminder, Paul gives Timothy, 
the Ephesian church and us two important challenges. And I'll say that this is not just to Timothy because both those words you in verse 20 and verse 21 are actually plural. They're for all of us. So he gives us this challenge and he summarizes all that he has said so far. And so as we work through these two short verses, I want to take the time to walk us back through the book to see and remind us of what these challenges look like for us here today. The first challenge is this. He says, oh, Timothy, us guard the deposit, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The word guard is an interesting word. It means what we think of today as guard. It means to watch over it, to follow it, to protect it. The tense of the word actually means it's something that we are to do and to continually keep on doing. Continually guard the deposit. What is this deposit? It is the pure teaching of the word of God. That word deposit is an interesting word. It means that which is placed in trust. It's a word that was used to talk about valuable property being put on trust in another man's keeping. Today, we think about this even in our banking terms. When you deposit money at a bank, you're not just giving them money, but you trust that they are going to use it in depending on the account to gain interest on your account. It was used in the ancient world in Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures of the high obligation of having in trust another person's treasured possessions, of, of keeping it safe and using it properly and returning it as it was and often better than it was. And assumed in this process was the faithfulness on the part of the trustee. Something has been deposited to us that we are to care for and we are to guard. So what is this deposit? Well, the contents of the deposit have been defined in different ways, but the most likely way that we see it in this text is to the gospel and the living out of the gospel, our faith. The deposit can't be distinguished from faith and the commandments that are referred to throughout 1 Timothy. The term is used in 2 Timothy as the faith or the commandments. It's used as the proceeds that Paul uses to hand over his mission of proclaiming the gospel. And so we discover that this faith is meant to include all of Scripture. In other words, we are called to guard the word of God. This is where the particular significance of this challenge is found. The preciousness of what we are to guard. We're not simply given a deposit of something insignificant. We're not called to guard something foolish. Rather, we are to guard, to defend the very truth of God. We're to defend the truth and invite the world to participate and share in its precious freedom. This implies that we need to take great effort to proclaim a pure gospel. And like a faithful and vigilant guard to rush in and defend it when it's under attack or when it's misrepresented. In other words, the church is the guardian of the truth. The church is not a social club. The church is not a fellowship group. We have the great task of being the guardians 
and the proclaimers of the truth. Because we defend, because we don't defend or proclaim our truth, we defend and proclaim the truth of God. There are some serious implications. There are some serious things we need to understand. First, this means that the Christian faith is not human invention. It's a treasure committed to men by God. Man didn't come up with this whole idea. It was received from God. 2 Timothy 1, 20 and 21 tells us this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. They didn't just make it up. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we work through the Word of God, we are working through the very words of God Himself, not our own inventions. But second, this means that we must take great pains to make sure that we are proclaiming God's message and not our message. We can't manipulate the text to make them say what we want them to say. Too often we come to Scripture with ideas of what we already believe and what we already think, and then we try to manipulate the text to make them say what we want them to say. But we are told in 2 Corinthians 2.17 that we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Who tests our hearts. So we have to make, take great pains and make sure that as we work through scripture and as we study it, that we are handling it rightly. We're not manipulating the text to say what we want it to say, but rather we are submitting ourselves to what it says. And third, then, this means that we must guard that truth, we must guard that deposit, we must defend the truth of scripture. Against all who would misuse it or who would oppose it. In Jude 3, Jude, the brother of Jesus, says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, you have an obligation as part of the church of God to guard the truth, to defend the truth. But how do we do this? How is this supposed to be done? Well, we've seen throughout the epistle how this is done. And so I want to walk with you back through the epistle. Turn back over to chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1. We find in verse number 5 the first way that this is supposed to be done. He tells us the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So as we guard the deposit, we must focus on the proper aim 
of God-like, self-sacrificial love. He says the aim of this charge is love. Now, this is not the lustful, selfish love of the world. This word, agape love, is a beautiful word. As defined in Scripture, this love offers itself freely to someone who does not deserve it. This love does not seek its own self-satisfaction. This love may be described as a personal delight in God, a, a grateful response of the entire personality to Him, and a deep yearning for the prosperity of the loved, and an earnest desire for the temporal and eternal welfare of the one loved. So as we defend the truth, we do so in a way that demonstrates love. Now, when we truly love someone, we are willing to say hard things to them. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love does not rejoice in sin, but rather rejoices in the truth. However, when we bring the truth, we do so in love. Not as a bat to beat the sinner over the head. Not as a debate tool to manipulate the other person into our way of thinking, but as a means of healing and righteousness, as a way of care. So we guard the truth by remembering the aim of love. Secondly, verse 18, we see that we guard the truth by waging good Warfare. He says in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We're reminded that we are engaged in battle. We recognize that there is a cosmic war for souls that is taking place right now. And we are entrusted with the task of entering the fray. But it's not a political battle. It's a spiritual battle for the souls of men and the truth of Scripture. And so we fight. We work. We war. But we don't war like the world. You know, today the world does not try to work with truth. Instead, they simply assassinate character and disregard anyone they deem the enemy. But as believers, we're called to think clearly, to be able to nuance, to recognize that God is working. And as a result, we're called to three, chapter two, pray for authority. Look at chapter two, verses one through four. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, it's become vogue today to simply mock and demean authority. The reality is Christians have an authority problem. And the solution to this problem is to learn to pray for our authority. Not that God would destroy them. Right? That's easy. No. Rather, Paul instructs us to pray that they would lead a quiet and peaceable life. 
that they would govern in godliness and dignity. So rather than complain about and malign our governor or our president or your boss or church leadership, instead, pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would care for them. And in doing this, you prove yourself distinct from the world. You stand as a picture of the gospel. The world today does not respond with grace and prayer for people they deem as their enemy. They don't respond with grace and prayer towards their authority. No, they yell and scream and assassinate their character. But as a Christian, we're called to be different. And in doing so, we guard the truth. Another way that we guard the truth is that we demand qualified church leadership. We see this through chapter 3. If the church is going to be the guardian of the truth, then it must be led by guardians of the truth. This is why chapter 3 was devoted to right church leadership. Because you are called to guard the to guard the deposit entrusted to you. And so you are to demand qualified church leadership. But note that the qualifications are not the qualifications of the business world. Rather, they're the qualifications of character above all else. See, leadership in the church is not based on popularity or whether you like someone or whether they're just a nice person, but rather on godliness. Why is it so important? Because the church is the guardian of the truth. And if it's not led by men of truth, it cannot guard the truth. Next, we saw that we are to train for godliness. Chapter 4, verse number 7. Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Over and over are these words of work, of effort, of training. Train yourself to godliness. Don't neglect, but rather practice these things. Immerse yourself. Keep a close watch. Persist in. In other words, you have to work for godliness. You have to rightly study the word of God. This means that simply reading a short ditty and calling it good for the day, I did my time, that's not going to cut it. Rather, you must spend time mining out the truth of Scripture. You must not assume the meaning of a text, but work at it. Christian, you're called to study the Word. You can't walk with God. You can't please God. You can't stand for the truth 
if you are not daily in the word yourself. You must do the hard work of learning the word. Finally, in chapter 6, we find that all of these are for naught if we don't act like people of God. Note verse, chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As we saw a couple weeks ago, you must pursue a life that is pleasing to God. The Christian life does not just happen. You must strive for it. As I said a couple weeks ago, our country is not in the state it is in because sinners are sinning. We are in the state that we are in because righteous people are not living as though they are righteous. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Christian, we are called to guard the truth. We must contend for it in the midst of a fallen world. And we must live it out as examples of the grace and the greatness of God. Guard the deposit. Second, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, the middle of verse 20, we are to avoid irreverent babble. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. It says we are to avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions. The word avoid means to go out of the way, to run away from it. You don't mess with it. You don't engage with it. You avoid it. What are we to avoid? We are to avoid the irreverent babble. The word irreverent means profane or unspiritual, pointless, worthless speaking. It was used back in chapter 1, verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and, and here's the word, profane. It's the same word as irreverent. And it's irreverent babble, empty, useless utterings. Worthless. We're to avoid that. We're to avoid contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The word contradictions is a word you will recognize. It is the Greek word antithesis. Antithesis. It means to object. It occurs only here in the New Testament. It's a technical term in debate for the counter proposition. It describes an argument that is self-defeating. While they're arguing, they're de de defeating themselves. This teaching is teaching that might appear to be biblical. At first look, it looks like it's okay. But as you look closer, as you examine it, it's revealed to be false. It's pointless, unhelpful to the kingdom of God. It stands in opposition to the word. It's the antithesis of the truth. It might bear a resemblance to knowledge, 
but it lacks any substance. We're told to avoid this teaching. Don't waste time with it. Speak the truth and leave it at that. One man said it this way. We're not to waste any time on the inanities of those false teachers who understand neither the words which they are speaking nor the themes on which they are harping with such confidence. Such profane, empty jabbering must be simply shunned. We must turn away from them in disgust. And we're to do so, we're to do this because there's no way to refute a myth or ridiculous interpretation of Scripture because by espousing that interpretation, that view, the proponent of that view reveals that they themselves are incapable of thinking rationally. You can't argue with stupid. And so you avoid it. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. But the important question we must ask is what does this foolish teaching look like? What are these silly myths, endless genealogies? What are these foolish babblings, contradictory teachings? What does this look like? Well, Paul's addressed this throughout the epistle. Again, turn back to chapter 1. Work through this again. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, tell us that it looks like different doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. He tells them he's to charge them not to teach any different doctrine. It means to teach something totally different than what the Bible actually says. It says, verse 4, they devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They turned their minds to, they were concerned about these fables, these legendary stories, these fiction statements, myths, endless genealogies, unrestrained speculations, useless and unhelpful. This is the kind of teaching that leads nowhere. It's the kind of teaching that does not result in holy living. Sadly, the same error occurs today in many different forms. Instead of studying the infallible word, some resort to eloquent speech, exciting stories, or fanciful teaching. Instead of preaching the word, it's story time with Uncle Pastor. Rather than expound what God says dogmatically in the word, they loudly proclaim what they perceive the Holy Spirit is somehow leading them to say or even to do even if it's bizarre and contrary to the written word. I have a prophecy from the Spirit this morning. Me too. It's right here. 
We don't need anything else. This contains everything you need for life and godliness. Many are simply mere positive speakers, not biblical speakers. They fit better in the church of Oprah than in the church of God. We see this in the word of faith teaching on television. The girlfriend theology of most Christian books for women. And the marginalization of biblical preaching today in favor of music and entertainment in the church. Instead of actually teaching and preaching the word, leaders in the church have settled for less than that which holds the actual power of God. Further, they do this with confidence. Verse 7 says they state these things with confidence assurance. They're arrogant, but actually they know nothing. It reminds us of Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We see as well what this teaching looks like over in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Some who are part of the body of Christ, some who seem to be Christians, will depart from the word and will begin to make Christianity something that it is not. They'll turn away from the theology of the word and begin to accept and promote the humanism of the world. An important lesson here is that a mere profession of faith does not guarantee the actual possession of eternal life. Just because someone claims to be a Christian or something claims to be Christian does not make it so. We're reminded of the parable of the seeds. Some seed will appear to take root, but will not be genuine. The cause of their departure is not their high intellect. The cause of their departure is not some new revelation. The cause of their departure is not some overwhelming love of people which desires to make Christianity palpable. Now, Paul tells us that the cause of their departure is something far more sinister. He says it is devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. They have given their attention. They have attached themselves to deceitful, seducing spirits. And they actually teach the lessons of demons. In the context of this verse, the grammar ties deceitful spirits to demonic teachings. So that the spirits are actually demons and emissaries of Satan's himself. You see, this apostasy is driven by demonic beings. And we're remind, we must remind ourselves of what Paul had already written to the Ephesians. Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers. Against the authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And this is why we respond to our enemies with love. Because they're not actually our enemies. They're tools of our enemy. Satan himself. So when we follow these things, we're actually following the teachings of demons. This is not teaching about demons. But rather, it's the teaching taught by demons. 
When we move away from the word, our teaching actually becomes satanic. You see, those materials, those teachers that simply move away from the word or add to the word with prophecy, that's not just something to wink at or smile at or just say, that's okay, that's what they believe. It is actually satanic teaching. This is why we are called to guard the word. This is why an emphasis on the word is so important. Another important note is that these errors rarely come through people who are easily identified as non-Christian. They are nice people. They don't seem to be doing wrong. But this is because they've had their conscience seared. We also see what this teaching looks like in chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and depri- depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, we can identify these false teachers by their fruits. We can identify them by the marks they present. And Paul gives us four specific marks we're to look at which help us identify them. First, false teachers are not committed to Scripture. They use Christian words. They speak about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit. They feign allegiance to the Word, but the foundation of their ministry and their teaching is not the Word of God. They'll either add to it or take away from it or rip it out of context. Or sometimes they frankly deny it altogether. They love to argue from logic, from philosophy, from personal experience, from feeling, from emotion, from political ambition. But they don't take the scripture and exposit a full text to present God's thoughts. They're an inch deep and a mile wide. They use the word when it agrees with them and they disregard it. Or ignore it when it doesn't. Their favorite statement is, well, that's just your interpretation. Second, as we saw, false teachers are arrogant but ignorant. They believe they have the answers. When they've done the philosophical work, they've discovered the secrets, they've figured out the answer, but it's not actually from the word because they don't really need that. They're arrogant. The problem is that because they're not faithful to the word, which is the foundation of truth, they are in actuality ignorant. Third, they love controversy. They love to speculate about things. They're preoccupied with sounding really smart and being up with the latest theories. They love to argue about life. They're quick to argue about politics and life and theology. Social media is their haven. They love to comment under everyone else's posts with their own arguments and opinions because they live for conflict. And finally, they lack contentment. 
behind the false teacher's facade, behind their supposed intellectualism, and their false piety lies their real motivation. They want gain, supposing that godliness is the means to gain money, popularity, authority, applause, and influence. We're reminded over and over that false teaching will be prevalent. Just because something labels itself as Christian does not mean that it is. And again, most of what labels itself as Christian today is not Christian. We must filter everything through the word of God and avoid irreverent babble. Again, 2 Peter 2. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and any who follow their sensuality. And because of the way of truth, because of of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Another mark of this false teaching is that it is marked by gossip and slander. We find this in the middle of the statements about the widows in chapter 5. Verse 13, talking about them, it says, because that they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. We learn that those who don't value the word, in this case, widows taking advantage of the church, love to gossip and slander others. They love to tell you all about the people and assassinate their character. We ought to avoid irreverent babble. But why is this so important? This feels awkward. It feels as though it could be inconvenient. It feels as though it could be a challenge. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because failure will cause us to swerve from the faith. Chapter 6, again, verse 21 tells us certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. The word swerved was used of planets that had gone off the mark. It means to miss the mark, to deviate. By promoting these false doctrines, they've been aiming at the wrong thing. And so they miss it altogether. They're not advancing true faith. As a church, we are to be the guardians of the truth. We're to be faithful to the word. So I want to commend to you the statement of one faithful pastor. Pastored in the same church now for over 50 years. Says this. The most important yardstick by which a church can be measured is not how large it is. How good its fellowship is. Or how interesting the pastor is. It's not how good the music is. Or how old are the grounds. Or how well the grounds are kept up. Or how respected it is in the community. The most important measure of any church. Is how it handles the word of God. Whether or not they teach and live out divine truth. Is the key issue. Because the church is, is responsible before God to guard and proclaim the truth of Scripture. Consequently, the most severe crime against God is to mishandle his revelation. Those portraying a false, idolatrous image of him to the world. 
to fail to take God's word seriously, whether by careless interpretation or by careless living, is to fail to take God himself seriously. And so we end our time with this import, in this important letter. We've learned that the church is the picture of Christ. And as such, it is to guard the truth of God. We must organize the church as God directs. We must care for one another as God directs. We need to follow the word as God directs because it's his. And all of this means that we value the word of God above all else. Next week, we'll begin Paul's second epistle to Timothy, in which he drives home the importance of making the word of God our foundation. So as we finish 1 Timothy, let me give you three important challenges. Number one, stand faithful to the word of God. Stand faithful to the word of God. Study it. Obey it. Let it determine your thinking. Don't let your thinking determine what you think it says. Let the text speak for itself. Study it and obey it. Secondly, reject teaching that does not line up with the word of God. As you study it and as you examine teaching, everything filters through the word. And if it doesn't follow the word, you reject it. Not everything that labels itself as Christian is Christian. Judge, test the spirit to see whether it is of God. And then as a result, number three, change the world through the gospel of Christ. The answer through all of this was the word of God, the gospel of Christ. It is the solution to our ills today. It is the solution to our problems today. The solutions are not political or legislative. The solutions are not familial. The solutions are theological. They stem from the gospel of Christ. So change the world through the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you that you are faithful. That you have not left us without instruction. So Lord, help us to guard that instruction. To value it above all else that in all things you might be made to look as good as you really are, and that through your word the world might be changed. We do love you. In Jesus' name, amen.